All right. Well, today we're actually going to be talking about uh, how Jean-Luc Picard, yes, the Starship Enterprise Next Generation Captain, um, helps us better understand the hope of the Advent season. All right? So let's pray. Speak to us, Lord, in the waiting, in the watching, in the hoping, in the longing, in the sorrow, in the singing, in the rejoicing. Speak to us, God, by your word in these Advent days and walk with us until the day of your coming. Amen. Amen. The truth is, in a million years, I never would have imagined that I would open the Advent season with Star Trek. All right? (laughs) Any Trekkies out there? Any people like? All right, we got a couple. All right? Andrew, yeah. If you want to... Jeff's pointing at you, so I'm just assuming that maybe you're a huge fan. Yeah? Okay. All right. Good. Yeah. Okay, so this is where I was going next, right? As a kid growing up, right, I loved the original. I mean, Captain Kirk and Spock, Scotty, Sulu, like the all-star cast of space travelers. And I was thinking about this, right? I think I was almost angry when The Next Generation came out. Like, how could anyone possibly even compete with the acting of William Shatner? <laughs> I mean, so I was like mad when The Next Generation, I, I wouldn't even give the show a chance. But I actually learned something, right? When I looked into The Next Generation a little bit, I realized that all the critical stuff written about The Next Generation says that Star Trek The Next Generation like prides itself on sharing with us insights into the human condition. Like, who would have known? You know, I, I didn't know that. Um, because the first series really did not. You know, it was about Captain Kirk getting the lady, right? Is that what you would say? Okay, in the, th- the third season. I don't know it that well. That's just what I remember about it as a kid, you know? Um, And so I found this one particular episode, and it's called uh, The Inner Light. And it's actually when I read about it at first, before I watched it, what I read was that it's one of the greatest pieces of science fiction ever written. And that got my attention. So I took a look at it, and I actually watched this episode, right, where Jean-Luc Picard encounters this alien probe. The alien probe attaches itself to him, renders him unconscious. He falls down on the deck of the Enterprise. Now, I've watched some science fiction before, and I can't say that anything that I've ever watched in my life was emotionally moving sci-fi. This was. Like, I could not believe watching this episode. And so here's what happens. He wakes up in this foreign city called Resic on the planet of Catan, only to discover that he's assumed the life of another man, a man named Cayman. Cayman is married, right? Cayman later has children. And so decades pass. As Picard now came in, he learns to kind of forget and leave his former life as the starship captain behind and actually embrace the love of his wife and children in this new place that he gets to. And this takes a long time because he's the captain of the starship enterprise and he knows it when he gets there. And so being a really smart guy and this first-rate scientist, what he learns is that the planet of Catan that he's now on is slowly dying due to the Nova of its sun. So the sun is becoming brighter and brighter, it's hotter and hotter, and this severe drought threatens the extinction of this entire civilization. And he realizes this, and so as the people of Catan, they start to come to grips with the inevitable, they do this amazing thing. They take a tree, and they plant this symbolic tree, and they call it this, a symbolic tree of hope. All right, so you see where we're going here. This is where we're going. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. And they plant this tree of hope, And the only way to keep this tree alive is if every person in the village gives a portion of their water rations to water it. Otherwise, they can't grow anything outside anymore, and they're they're starving. 
And so this tree stays alive as the sun gets hotter and hotter. And what was so fascinating, right, is that when they get to this tree, they planted the tree, and the guy who planted it said that hope is a powerful weapon against anything, even drought. And that, like, sets up the whole rest of the episode. And so they desperately, they just don't want to be forgotten. And so they build this interactive probe that contains memories of their civilization. And they send it into space, hoping that their civilization and memories of them will be carried into the future so that they're not forgotten. Cayman goes and he witnesses this probe being launched, and it's at that moment in the episode that he realizes that somewhere in the future that probe attaches itself to him as Captain Jean-Luc Picard, right? And he has this realization, and then the soil dies, Catan gets hotter and hotter, the people of Catan begin to die, their civilization goes extinct, and Picard wakes back up on the deck of the Starship Enterprise. Only 20 to 25 minutes have gone by, right? And yet he lived decades of life on this other planet. And then this really emotional moment comes when the flute that he learned to play while on Catan that was given to him by his wife appears in his hands on the Enterprise. And it's like just this, he's overcome this burden of carrying the weight of hope for this entire civilization. And so the episode, it has a bunch of important themes. It highlights the kind of depressing aspects of the state of the world. It deals with these painful truths about the sustainability of the world in the future. Uh, But what really jumped out at me was the issue of hope. The hope of the people of Catan was to live on in the memory of Captain Picard so that their civilization would never be forgotten. It made me think about the hope at the end of the world as we know it. Um, All human beings share that desire to be remembered, to not be forgotten, And so my question when I started thinking about this and I watched this episode is like, do we as people of faith, do we have a better hope than that? Do we have something better than just being remembered in the future by one individual? And so the message of Advent is going to help us to answer this question and tell us what is our hope and is it greater than the people of Catan had? And so today is the first Sunday of Advent. It's the first day at the beginning of the liturgical Christian year. And so we know that the word Advent, it comes from a Latin word, which just means arrival or coming. And so Advent is this season of waiting. It's designed to cultivate our awareness of what God has done in the past, in the present, and in the future. And so there are these two equally important parts. In Advent, we hear about waiting for the coming of the Messiah, but we also know that it's about waiting for the day when the Messiah will return in power and in glory to make things right and to rule as king. So that's where we find ourselves today, at the end of history. And so it's kind of dealing with this apocalyptic literature, which can be a little complicated, a little bit obscure, but here's the really simple thing that we can all get our heads around, is that apocalyptic literature, what it is, it's a revealing of the end of the age, uh, and it's a glimpse into the future age to come. So that's what we're going to read in a second. So apocalyptic literature, it shows us the end of the story before the story is ended. That's what it's doing, giving us a glimpse into the end. And what it does is it portrays this theology of hope that I believe goes well beyond the hope of just being remembered because it's going to remind us that God is on the throne, right? And so listen for yourselves and take hope in the coming king. Mark 13, 24 to 37. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, 
The stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about the day or the hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. This is the word of the Lord. And so we all look around. This is just some obvious stuff. We look at the state of the world today, and we can all probably agree that it is not as we wish it was. It is not as it ought to be. And so like the people of Catan, we have our own serious issues that threaten the sustainability of our future. And we long for things like things that are wrong to be made right. We long for justice to be served. We long for love to win and for peace to reign, all these beautiful Advent themes. And so if you've ever longed for peace or justice or love, if you've ever held intention the way things are in the world today with the way that things you, you wish things would be, if you've ever uh, like longed for a bright hope for the future, then this passage is for all of us in this grand finale of the gospel is preached by Jesus. There's this real and tangible hope for the future. So some of you know I'm a, I'm a big history fan. And so my original plan before sensing God's call to ministry was actually to be a history professor. That was, that was kind of what I was going to school for. And so in all my college history classes, I remember sitting in them. Um, and we never studied eschatology, like the end, the end times, right? In my history classes, we never, we never discussed this. You know, most of my uh, history professors were almost all agnostic or atheist, right? And so I used to sit in their class, and I'd think to myself, like, ha, like a lowly undergrad knows more than you. Like, I know how this whole history thing ends, and you don't, you know? And it was funny how my professors never recognized my true inner genius. Um, <laughs> they never invited me to teach the class or share my faith or anything like that. Go figure. Um, But here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus says in those days. It's a reference to the end times when Jesus will return. In those days, humanity will no longer usurp history. But history finally will relinquish to the Lord and creator of the universe who will return in glory to establish justice, condemn evil, eliminate suffering, and gather up his people. And so before Christ's return, we have this tribulation. Jesus, in this passage, calls it uh, the suffering, right? And so we have to go through this first. And so the sun is said to be dark and the moon giving off its light, uh, the stars falling from the heavens. It's almost, almost like an episode of Star Trek to me, you know? And I remember, as a kid, being a little bit scared of the end times. Has anyone ever, like, 
There, remember those books left behind? Those that series of books, like written to designed to scare children into making confessions of Jesus. Like you know what I'm talking about, right? And so, like, that used to be a tactic. Like, we'll just scare kids into making a confession of Christ. But here's the thing. Like, these words of Jesus, they're not meant to scare children. Like, they're just not what they're designed to do. They're not designed to scare us. Quite the opposite. They're actually written to do quite the opposite. They're meant, they were spoken by Jesus to instill this profound sense of confidence and hope that God is in charge and God is on the throne. And so the passage is also just kind of has tons of irony in it. Jesus is actually preparing for his shameful, this excruciating execution on the cross. And yet here in this passage, he's speaking of himself coming again in the clouds in power, right? And so like me sitting in my history classes where I said, I knew the end of the history and my professors didn't, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I know the ending. And how this thing works out. And here's how it's going to work out. As painful as I'm sure he knew his near future to be, this was one of those moments where he saw a light at the end of the tunnel. He knew that after humiliation would come exaltation. And so the kind of hope, this kind of hope, when I was thinking about it, this would have been impossible for the people of Catan in the episode of Star Trek. They had no hope like this whatsoever for their future. And so when Jesus comes again, what he says is he's coming with a purpose. Christ will send out his angels, it says, to gather his people from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is my favorite part of this teaching. I love it because Jesus knows where we are. You know? Every single one of us. And he's coming for us. He's coming uh, to bring us and draw us near, is what he says. So here's, here's our hope. I summarized it with a couple things. This is a lot different than the people of Catan, right? Jesus says he knows who we are. Jesus says he knows where we are. He knows whose we are. And that Jesus is coming back to gather us up and to draw us near. Much different than the Star Trek episode. And so he who would be crucified at the hands of the world will come back with power and glory not to exact revenge, but to collect what belongs to him. To collect what belongs to him, which is us, his beloved and treasured people. And so then Jesus moves on to this kind of weird lesson. He says, learn from the fig tree. Well, the fig tree drops its leaves in the winter. They reemerge in late spring, and that indicates that summer is just around the corner. What Jesus seems to be saying, what he's warning, is that things are going to get worse before they get better. And so disaster did strike the Jews about 40 years after Jesus said these words. And these words seem like a reference to what happened 40 years later, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. When Rome invaded and laid siege to the city where thousands starved to death, More Jews died during this siege at their own hands in complete chaos than by their Roman conquerors. And these were, to them, the darkest of days. And so Jesus seems to be warning them that although they thought this might be and seem like the end of the world, Jesus is saying it's not the end of the world, but it's going to feel like it. It's going to seem like it. And so Titus, the son of the Roman emperor Vespasian, entered the city of Jerusalem, burned the temple to the ground, and crucified thousands of Jews at the finish of this campaign. 
And so the mysterious kind of fig tree teaching that Jesus like jams into the middle of this passage, it seems to be about this real historical event that uh, actually happened 40 years later. Jesus is trying to, you know, he, he warns us that trying to predict the end of the world is a giant adventure and missing the point. And he doesn't seem to want us to do that. Predicting the end of the world is not what Jesus had in mind. So I picked one of my favorite TV celebrities. I don't always predict the end of the world, but when I do, I'm wrong. And this is Jesus' message, right? And so to keep with, uh, and by the way, since we were doing like first generation Star Trek to next, this guy's better than the new one, right? Does anyone like the new guy better? No one? It's okay if you do. Like, I like this guy better. Anyway, I'm getting off track. So we're going to keep the whole sci-fi thing going, only actually we're going to do it with a true story, all right? And so Jesus uh, says, don't try to predict the day or the hour or the end times because what? He just says, like, I don't even know it. So don't waste your time with stuff like that. But the thing is, it hasn't stopped people from trying. So here's one true story about someone who tried. It's about 50 years ago. There was this small religious cult. Uh, I don't know who remembers this, led by, it's just before my time, uh, Marion Keach, who predicted the world was going to end on December 21st, but it was the way it was going to happen, which is just phenomenal. It's awesome. And then there was this psychologist, his name was Leon, and he decided he wanted to infiltrate this group, right? Because he wanted to see what would happen to the group when their predictions did not come true. He was, wanted to study these people and say, oh, let's see what they're going to do when, you know, when, it, when this doesn't work out. And so here's what she did. She predicted that the day before the end of the world was going to happen, that a flying saucer, okay, no joke, a flying saucer was going to come at midnight and pick them up and take them somewhere. I don't know where. Like, I'm not making, this is not Star Trek. Like, this is real. Um, and so what, this is amazing. Like, many of her followers, they actually quit their jobs. They gave away their homes and their savings um, because they knew they were on their way out, you know? Um, and the funny thing is that her own husband didn't believe her. And so, like, he slept like a baby that night. Didn't wake up at midnight when the flying saucer was supposed to come. Like, if it had showed up, this guy would have missed it. He would have missed his ride. And so the psychologist was really interested. He made his predictions too. He predicted that when the flying saucer failed to arrive to pick him up, that all of her followers would just become disillusioned and then they'd just leave and that would be the end of the cult. Um, and let's just say that everyone's predictions were wrong. Midnight came and went. Surprise, surprise. No flying saucer. 2 a.m., the group is starting to get a little bit worried. And by 5 a.m., the leader announces that she's had a new vision. Convenient. Good timing, right? And so she has this new vision, and what her new vision says is that because of the, the prayers of this group, they had actually saved the world, right? Um, and so instead of disillusionment and despair, her followers actually took to the streets to try to gain converts because of this, even announcing to the media that they had saved the world. Um, there's only one savior. And her name is not Marion Keach or whoever this group was called. The Bible says that there's one Savior, his name is Jesus. And while though we may not know the hour, we may not know when the time of the end will be, what we're assured, the scripture says, is that Jesus' words will outlive everything. And so the same Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, as God with us, like the first song that we sang, that Jesus is coming back. And so the first and the second comings of Jesus, they really comprise this one big event in which we live in between, in between the two advents of Christ. 
And so how do we prepare for something that we don't know when it will take place, when it will happen? Here's what Jesus says. It's, he gives us really simple stuff here. So in a really complicated passage, the practical stuff is actually really simple and really easy. He says that we have to become doorkeepers, you know, which is probably not something we're used to. Um, he says that our job is to be a doorkeeper, which has only one function. He says it twice. He says stay awake, right? Pay attention and keep watch for the coming of the master. Now, if this is where, I think this is the most important thing. The key here is that watching and waiting are not passive. And so I think this is where, we, if we're going to make a mistake on this passage, this is where it's going to be. It's not watching and waiting passively. It's not an excuse for laziness. It's not about catching up on much-needed sleep. It's about staying awake. And so I found this one. It's a quote that's attributed to John Wesley. Well, let's hope it is. And what he said was, do all the good you can in all the ways that you can, to all the souls that you can, in every place that you can, at all the times that you can, with all the zeal that you can, as long as ever you can. This gets much closer to what Jesus is saying than going to sleep, right? We have work to do. And so if we're living for God, it doesn't really matter when Christ returns because no matter what, we'll be ready. Our job in the watching and the waiting is an active job. It's really the job of faithfulness that Christ has already given us our marching orders. We already know this, that we're to be a light to the world, to make disciples, to provide hope for those to whom all hope seems to be lost. And so the holiday season, we know, is not warm and fuzzy for everyone. There's tremendous suffering and need in people all around us. And so the Bible speaks of this day when God will wipe away every tear, when tears give way to joy. But in the meantime, in this time between the advents, God's face can still shine through. And I was thinking about this. I thought God's face shines through when we live in such a way that we share the hope of the coming one, that God is going to make all things right. And so we're invited to live in such a way where we bring little pieces of heaven to earth, providing light to those in darkness, sharing the hope of the one who is to come, who will complete the kingdom. And so we practice living today the way that we were designed, the way that we were created to live for, for eternity. And so the people of Catan, they had, in my mind, just this meager, small hope, right? It wasn't much to be remembered by one man. But in Advent, we're reminded that our hope in Jesus Christ runs a lot deeper than that. Jesus is coming, and when he does, we're assured that all wrongs will be made right, that justice and peace will reign. And my personal favorite part, that Jesus will not forget us. He knows where we are, he knows whose we are. And that Jesus will come back to gather us up, to draw us clear, uh, near. And that is an Advent hope that we can hold on to. Will you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for the hope of Advent. That you will come again to make things right. And God, as we yearn for that day, help us to not grow complacent about the dismal state of things in the world today but prompt us to actively join with you in mission so that the hope of Jesus Christ is spread like a light reaching into the darkness. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.